0: Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to
1: Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is with us again this week. John is a frequent guest on our program. He's the president of the John William Hope Foundation and uh, has, uh, as I said, has been on our program for years and author of eight books, and we'll talk about some of those later on. But right now, John, let's just jump right into the topic. We're not that far away from a primary election and yet, uh, I don't hear a lot see a lot uh, about it. What, what, what's your impression of what's going on with that United States Senate race here in North Carolina that's so important?
2: It's very competitive uh, on the Democratic side. Not so much because Sheree uh, Beasley, who was the uh, the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. She she's going to be the Democratic nominee, of course. But this is a Democratic, I'm sorry, a Republican trending election cycle in 2022, which means the Republican primary uh, may very well determine who the next U.S. Senator is, and we've got a a competitive contest. Ted Budd, the current member of Congress from the triad area, Mark Walker, the former member of Congress, uh, also from the triad area, and of course former Governor Pat McCrory are the leading candidates Bud and McCrory are within a few percentage points of each other. McCrory had been ahead for uh, the early stages of the race, but that was until Ted, Bud, and more importantly, the super PACs and in entities that are supporting Bud came in with a massive ad buy, much of it attacking McCrory. So now Bud is in the lead by a few points, uh, but it, it is certainly not over. Uh, I think the McCrory campaign and supporters of McCrory will probably be running ads soon. We we only have a few weeks left uh, until the primary, and so uh, it it looks like those are the only two candidates that have a chance of winning, and right now, it looks like one of them will probably win outright. Uh, In other words, they will get more than 30% of the vote. That's all you need to do now in North Carolina to avoid a primary runoff, is simply get 30% plus one vote uh, and be the top vote-getter, and you're the nominee. So I think right now the most likely scenario is no runoff, uh, just because while there are multiple candidates, I think both of them will, will I think both Cory and Bud will do Will do quite well. And then one of them will get over 30, maybe both of them get over 30.
1: Where did that 30% number come from? I, th- I thought that was a little low for having a runoff. I thought it should have been 40%. But anyway, that's just me.
2: It was 40% for a while. Originally, you may recall when the the runoff primary law was instituted, it was 50% of the vote required. This was clearly an attempt to suppress black candidates to keep them from being able to get nominations, particularly in the Democratic Party. So this was clearly an, an instance of Jim Crow era legislation. It was repealed and the primary cutoff was moved down to 40%. Uh, But just in the last few years, the legislature has moved it down to 30 percent, essentially arguing that runoffs don't accomplish anything. Uh, That when you have a runoff, I mean, of course, it settles who the candidate is going to be. But runoff turnouts are so tiny in comparison to regular primaries that to have a runoff is to let a relatively small percentage of the population uh, pick the outcome between two uh, finalists. And the argument is, why not just let that happen in the first primary? But their countervailing argument is Ted Butt or Pat McCrory could be nominated on the Republican side for U.S. Senate with just over 30 percent of the vote, which seems weird to people. John,
1: do you, uh, has there ever been a situation where you had three pretty viable candidates uh, running uh, like this, where all three of them you know, are in the ballpark? Yes, uh,
2: we've had primaries like that, including for U.S. Senate before. Um, I'm thinking of the race that, uh, let's see, this would have been in 92 when uh, Faircloth was, was running for uh, for the U.S. Senate. Uh, there were multiple candidates. 1986, there were multiple candidates. I mean, that there had been, obviously, gubernatorial campaigns. We've had a number of them. The, the classic example would be 1984, where the Democratic side had arguably six serious candidates <laughs> for governor. Um, uh, and so, so we've had that uh, not so much lately and we had three really high profile people like we do here. But I, in fairness, I would have to say that Mark Walker, while he is a former congressman and has a lot of name recognition in the political world, he's running very well behind Bud and McCrory. So it pro- it, it's almost certainly going to be one of, one of those two, Bud and McCrory, who gets the nomination.
1: Now, we've got one congressional race where there's dozens of candidates on the Republican side. Talk about that one, because there's a lot of candidates.
2: Well, we've got a couple of primaries, if I remember correctly, uh, in both the uh, 11th district, uh, which is out in the western part of the state, and in the the newly redrawn, newly created 13th district, uh, which is in the Triangle area and over down uh, into Johnston County, Wake County, Johnston County, etc., in both of those cases, I believe there are eight Republican candidates uh, running for the nomination. In the 11th district, the the one that gets is getting really national attention. This that's the one where Madison Cawthorn is the incumbent. His primary, uh, so to speak, opponent appears to be Chuck Edwards, who's a current state legislator uh, from that district, from that part of the state. Uh, but there are a number of other candidates that have supporters. Uh, Rod Huddycutt is another one uh, who has support in part of the district, uh, but I think it's going to come down to Cawthorn and Chuck Edwards, unless I miss my guess. And right now, Cawthorn is surely in the lead because he's the incumbent and well known. He's well known in part because of a series of mistakes, outrageous statements, violations of traffic laws, violations of other laws. He's he's gotten in, got his actions and his mouth have gotten him into a lot of trouble. Uh, he is still, however, a familiar name. And with that primary cutoff at 30 percent plus one vote uh, and with eight candidates, uh, it is conceivable that the various Republican uh, voters who I'm sorry, the various Republican candidates who want to replace Madison Cawthorn will split up the anti-Cawthorn vote and there'll be enough vote for Cawthorn to be renominated. That's certainly a possibility. The other crowded primary I think I'm thinking of is that 13th district. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, which is Way County and Johnston County and some and, and, and related areas. Uh, in that case, while there are eight candidates in that in that race, I, I'm right now focused on th- four. Uh, one of them is Kelly Daughtry. Uh, she's on TV and radio now with advertising. Uh, she is a she's not run for office before, but her father, Leo Daughtry, was a longtime state legislator from the area, from Johnston County. Renee Elmers, who is a former member of Congress, is also in that race and has a lot of name recognition. Bo Hines, uh, who is, does not have any political experience, but has been endorsed by Donald Trump uh, and others, uh, is also in that race, though he doesn't live in anywhere near the district, which has become a political problem for him. And then Devan Barber, who uh, I don't think has run for office, but his father uh, had been a longtime officeholder in Johnston. So I think those may be the main players in that race, but there are others uh, as well that are running, that are running, that are sending out mailers. I've talked to people about that race, uh, asking them what to expect and they don't know. (laughs) Uh, Other than they think Kelly Daughtry is is a strong, is a strong possibility, but maybe Bo Hines, maybe Devon Barber, maybe one of these others will will rise to the top.
1: Well, it's gonna be interesting. So how do you think the 11th district will end up? Uh, Do you think that uh, Carl Thorne will uh, pull 30% and have enough to uh, find his way back on the ballot? Well, I think
2: if the election were held right now, he would still be over 30%. However, I think his his support is declining by the week. And so if this primary was out into the summer, I think that tra- the trajectory would be bad for him because he really is mm-hmm. just losing support right and left that, that I've understood. However, he started with very high name recognition. And so even a falling... No. A falling number for an incumbent could end up being over 30%, which is all he needs to be renominated. We'll just have to see. Chuck Edwards has uh, gotten a lot of endorsements from prominent Republicans in North Carolina and elsewhere. He's raised and spent a lot of money. He certainly is a viable candidate, and perhaps he'll pull it off.
1: Any other surprises that you've seen so far in the uh, 14 congressional races that will be occurring across the state?
2: Yeah, we've talked about Republican primaries, but it's important to focus on at least one Democratic primary for Congress, that would be the fourth district. That's where uh, David Price, the longtime member of Congress from the Chapel Hill, Durham, sometimes Raleigh area, is retiring. And there are a number of candidates, I think maybe eight. That's the magic number right now. Uh, There are that many candidates in the Democratic primary to succeed him. That is a strongly Democratic district, so the primary is probably the election. And there are at least three candidates Uh, that are heavily contesting that primary in the 4th District of North Carolina. One of them is Clay Aiken, very well-known national celebrity from American Idol and The Apprentice, starring Donald Trump, ironically. Uh, So Clay Aiken is a significant uh, player simply because he has a lot lot of fame um, and people know him and he's raised some money. Uh, But also also Senator Valerie Foushee, who is from Durham, uh, is a well-known state legislator, uh, gotten a lot of endorsements in the area and the region. A lot of members or former members of Congress have endorsed her. She's very strong. Uh, but also Nita Alam, who's an up-and-comer, an officeholder in Durham County, local officeholder, uh, who's more connected with the sort of Bernie Sanders, the squad, kind of harder left part of the Democratic Party, and sen- Senator she is more associated with the traditional establishment Democratic Party in North Carolina. Uh, and Clay Aiken has got a lot of notoriety, so I, I think that's another race uh, that's highly competitive.
1: So, are you willing to go out on the limb on those three or four races that you've talked about, both Republican and Democrat, and tell me who you think will end up getting the uh, nominations to run in November?
2: Well, I would rather stall until we get to our first commercial break, uh, but I'm not <laughs> sure I have enough. I don't. I'm not sure I'm capable of enough filibustering for that. <laughs> so I think that in the I, I think in the 13th district, the one that's in the Wake and Johnston area, I think that might go to a runoff. Uh, I think we might end up with a runoff in that one, but I'm I'm, I'm not confident um, right now. If I again today, I think Madison Cawthorn might still be above the 30 percent number and would be renominated. Uh, but yeah, makes, if, you know, if he's
1: renominated with all his notoriety, does that mean a Democrat now has a significant opportunity yeah. in that district?
2: No, at least not in 2022. It's just too Republican a, a cycle, probably, for this to matter. I think that if Cawthorn's renominated, he'll probably be reelected, like it or not. But I think there is a chance. We've still got several weeks out, and, and there's so much pressure. and so, I mean, he just got another wave of bad publicity because of the, he got stopped again in March, and his license had been revoked, and his registration had been revoked. And people, people don't like the idea that members of Congress are being treated differently than they would be treated. Um, so I, I think that he's vulnerable. I'm just not sure uh, he'll fall below the 30%. I guess we'll find out. Uh, as far as the Democratic race is concerned, I think I would bet on Valerie Uh I, I just think she's likely the best fit for the turnout in that district uh, this cycle. But of course, I, I, don't, I don't have a confident <laughs> prediction there, but that's what I think will happen.
0: Well, okay, and I don't, so. I don't think
2: Clay Aiken, I think Clay Aiken is known I'm just not sure people take him super seriously as a potential member of Congress. That may be unfair to him, but I just think that's the way it is. So while he has a lot of notoriety, I think Fushi being a, a longtime officeholder, I think she was also in local government before she was elected to the, to the General Assembly. I think, I think she's got the strongest, uh, I, I think she has the inside track, let's put it that way.
1: Okay. And uh, so uh, what about the other district? You've got 10 uh, seconds.
2: That's the, that's the, the 13th. I, I really have no idea. Like I said, I think that could go to a runoff, but I'm not sure. I think Kelly Dodger would be one of the people in the runoff, but I'm not sure who the other would be.
1: Okay. So we've put John on the uh, line for those, and uh, we have some other topics to turn to when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers, so you stay tuned. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was .5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it.
0: 10 years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma.
1: When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing the educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter. has has been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it.
0: No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. we continue with Carolina newsmakers here's Don Curtis
1: we're back on uh, Carolina newsmakers I, again our guest this week is John Hood always nice to have John on because he's uh, uh, always willing to share his knowledge and background and and, and I always accuse John of working at a think tank anyway so I think all he does is sit around and read and study things so uh, somebody has to do it, and I'm glad it's John because he will share his thoughts with us. Let's talk about the Ukrainian situation and uh, how that is affecting so many different aspects of government uh, and uh, how you see that uh, ending up because most everybody that i talk talked to says, you know, no matter who, uh, if Putin wins the war, he's going to lose. Uh, and how will that, what long-term effect will that have on our economy, the Russian economy, and uh, world affairs.
2: Speaking right now, as we are in the midst of a political cycle with a primary a few a few weeks away in North Carolina, uh, no one would have expected for foreign policy to leap back up into one of the top issues that people care about. But that's what's happened. That's what's happens with the with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think it puts some uh, office holders like Madison Cawthorn. In great uh, peril because Cawthorne had been speaking uh, for weeks, not just right before the invasion, but for a long time, parroting this absurd sort of uh, Russophile line that Putin was 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 okay and that Ukraine is a corrupt state and uh, nonsense like that. He's had to back off of that because it was so unpopular, including among Republicans. as has some other so-called conservatives have who've been backing off of that kind of line when I mean, it became obvious how unpopular it was among actual Americans, not particularly fans of of tyrants invading and squashing other countries. Uh, But the problem that President Biden has is that uh, while Democrats, of course, support his handling of the war for the most part, many Republicans, while they support what he has done, think that it has not been sufficient. And some Democrats, but particularly Republicans. So Biden, while one might have thought, well, he's a foreign policy guy, and this may be distracting voters from some other issues where they were blaming him, like immigration or inflation or something. Well, now he's going to pivot to an area where he is leading the world in opposition to Russia's uh, unjust and tyrannical actions. Uh, It hasn't really worked out that way. People uh, really haven't given him very much credit at all for organizing the West's response. I think they think he has been... uh, too timid, and so it, it's a real perilous situation. Now, the actual issue, in my mind, is a very challenging one for America. I don't want to claim to be a foreign policy expert or anything, but just as a, as a, as an average citizen like you, uh, Don, um, I, I think that uh, we have to do everything in our power to arm and support Ukraine to attempt to. End this war on Ukraine's terms, and not on Russia's terms. Russia is not going to be able to conquer the whole country and incorporate it into a neo-Russian empire kind of thing, the way Putin wanted and had claimed that that Ukraine was never really a separate country anyway. That's not going to happen. And I don't think I, I think they have come to the understanding. It isn't just that they can take like two thirds of the country, but they're not going to take the western part of Ukraine, which they don't really care about. They don't really consider that to be part of Russia. It isn't even that. They can't take the central part of Ukraine, including Kyiv, the capital. And the real issue comes down to can they make additional and secure additional territorial gains in the eastern part of Ukraine, which is more the Russian-speaking, Russian-leaning part of Ukraine. I think America needs to do everything in its power to ensure that Russia does not gain any permanent territory out of this war. Uh, I don't know if that's possible, but that should be our goal. Our goal is not to overthrow Putin. We have to be clear about what our immediate goals are. It would be great for the world if he was taken out behind, uh, you know, the Kremlin and shot in the head. But, but that's not going to happen, I think. And so uh, I think we have to be very clear about what our goals are and uh, be willing to supply whatever weapons Ukraine needs and tell the Russians if they start to object, well, then pull out. We're not going to we're just not going to sit idly by and watch you conquer Ukraine. It's not going to happen and make it clear to Putin that he's not going to get what he wants. And the argument is, well, no, this will panic him and this will so enrage him that he will respond by uh, using a tactical nuclear weapon or something like that. I, I assume that we have already done this and our allies have already done this, but we should tell Putin very clearly Uh, We are not going to invade Russia, we're not going to start strafing your cities or shoot missiles at you. But if you use a nuclear weapon, even just within Ukraine, we will consider that to be an act of war against Europe, not just against Ukraine. All of your uh, pipelines, all of your, everything that comes out of Russia will be destroyed. We won't go into your territory, but anything that exits your territory will be destroyed. You will be blockaded. You will not be allowed to have in a fleet in the black sea. You will be given a certain period of time to evacuate your ships and then they will be sunk because they're not in Russian waters. Yeah. We should make it very clear that that is a line that is too far for us because that's the only thing that somebody like Vladimir Putin uh, understands that there is no way to placate him in a way that is consistent with justice. And and our principles, and we just ought to be very clear about it. And I think our leaders ought to be very clear about it. That doesn't mean that we should go willy nilly talking about taking him out, as Biden did. I think that's a mistake for a president to say something like that. Of course, we all agree that would be great. Well, probably Putin does it, but everybody else does. But that's not how presidents are supposed to do this. We should, as 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 has been said before, uh, speak somewhat softly. And carry a really, really big stick and make it clear how big that stick is and how hard it will hit.
1: You know, something I did uh, last week, I was kind of curious about the various populations of the countries of the world. And I I was a little surprised to see uh, where Russian population stood in the rank. Uh, You know, I'm going from memory now, but the Russian population is only 5 million people more than Mexico. I mean, it's not a hugely pop, uh, populous country. Um, I, I was surprised at that. I, I didn't realize that Mexico was nearly the same size and population as Russia.
2: Well, of course, the Soviet Union had a much larger population, but that's because oh, it yes. included Ukraine. It included Belarus, It included Kazakhstan. No. It included all the Stans. It included uh, the Georgia and Armenia. Uh, azerbaijan yeah. it included the baltic states so there, there was a lot of additional population that was included but they, these aren't russians
1: yeah and i think Contrary that's, to putin uh, what,
2: propaganda yeah.
1: yeah and i think that's what putin is uh, recognizing that he doesn't have the effect the other country that i was surprised at uh and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on where they're going to end up because india is just you know within a hair of overtaking china and and population um Where do you think our relationship with India will end up compared to our relationship with, say, China?
2: Our relationship with India is really one of the trickiest parts of the Ukraine conflict. Because India, while it had been coming closer to the U.S. for years because of some common interests, common interests in checking China. Remember, India and China have actually exchanged gunfire recently along their border. Um, and uh, the common interest in Afghanistan, and so, so there was a lot of talk about cooperation between India, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the U.S., and Pacific, and unfortunately, India has not really backed up America and the West in Ukraine. I think that it's a complex story. Some of it has to do with the fact that India is reliant on Russian weaponry, Russian resupply, Uh, They have real security concerns against China and against China's partner, which is Pakistan. And so they have some difficulty there, but also, and this goes back to the politics and to the president, Biden's uh, unsanctimonious and foolish retreat from Afghanistan had many bad consequences. One of them was to dismay India and Saudi Arabia, by the way, uh, because uh, India certainly didn't want the Taliban and the Pakistani intelligence services that run the Taliban as a as a cat's paw, they didn't want them back in control of Afghanistan. And they saw America's resolve weak, weaken and disappear. And they started to wonder if America could be trusted. As many Afghans still to this day wonder why they ever trusted Americans. And so India is, uh, India is an, in play at the moment, unfortunately, as is Saudi Arabia who's also gotten a little closer to Russia and Israel because they need security help and security guarantees against their primary enemy, which is Iran. And when America fled Afghanistan, uh, that was another thing that uh, another consequence was to, to make our relationship with the Saudis complex. You notice the Saudis have not been backing this up on Ukraine either. So all of these things are interrelated. And I think that there are Lots, there's a lot of blame to go around, but part some of these are fruits of the poison tree of one of the m- most colossal blunders of foreign policy in my lifetime, which was America's retreat from Afghanistan when there was absolutely no reason to do so. I uh,
1: wonder why and who was advising Biden to do that? Where, where did that support come from?
2: Well, it was bipartisan. Remember Trump, President Trump? wanted to do the same thing. He got talked out of it two or three different times by generals, people that he at least f- figured he should listen to. He tried to do it at the end of 2020 after the election and was talked out of it. So this is unfortunately not just the Biden policy. There were both Trump and Biden advisors strongly arguing that we've been in the Afghanistan long enough. We, we, we need to leave and it's too costly. The American public will love you if you, both presidents were told, that the American public wants out of Afghanistan, which was true, of course. We always want to end our military conflicts and bring our troops home. Who doesn't? What the Americans did never support, and certainly, as we can tell now, uh, we're never going to support. Was was defeat? Was to run away and be humiliated? That was never going to play well with the American people, particularly since America was not defeated on the battlefield. It was just something that the president decided to give up on. Uh, it was a low intensity conflict for Americans. It was a low cost conflict for Americans. It could have been sustained and should have been sustained for a long time. I was just talking to a acquaintance of mine, a, a veteran uh, who is a young man, but he fought in Afghanistan, he was a Green Beret. Uh, and he and his colleagues, he and his former uh, soldiers are just, they're just aghast. They, they feel like that they they were misled that someone has wasted all the effort they put into their conflict. And they've been very involved in trying to get their Afghan friends and Afghan allies out of the country. Uh, but th- this, is a, this is a disaster. And it's, it, if you look at the political, if you look at the polling for the president and for the Democratic Party, I mean, it was atrophy because of inflation and the concerns of COVID had not quite gone away and all that sort of thing. But it was the flight from Afghanistan last summer that began the real crash for Biden and the Democratic Party. It was a it was a colossal political mistake. But of course, I don't think you should do these things for political reasons. It was just a colossal mistake. And Americans know it, and that's why the president and others, including as I said, some conservatives and Republicans who had flirted with this idea, why why they look so bad in retrospect.
1: So uh John, how do we uh um rebuild our relationship with those countries like India that we have damaged uh what what's it going to take to rebuild those relationships
2: I think it's going about to take a seconds. lot of time I think it's going to take a lot of time it's going to take a lot of of careful thinking about what what reassurances we can get how can we practically assist the Indians with their real security concerns? now the you know India is by no means a you know wonderful place where liberal democracy is triumphant. There are lots of problems with the Indian government, uh, but you know we've got to deal with the reality as it is. And the relationship between the U.S. and India is one of the most important ones in the world and deserves a high level of attention for years to come by presidents of either party and the U.S. Senate. Uh, it's just a critically important question.
1: We're gonna talk about the economy here back at home and inflation and interest rates and so forth when we return to the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned.
0: I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
1: Only you can prevent wildfires.
0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: Back on Carolina Newsmakers, John Hood is with us. He's the president of the Don William Pope Foundation, has been on our program a number of times. I don't know how many times, dozens, as a matter of fact. And we always enjoy John's view on what's happening. And right now, John, I want to turn to talking about uh, our uh, economy here at home. Uh, The the, uh, ugly word of inflation has been... Mentioned dozens of times recently in the news, and inflation is one of the, the hardest uh, of the economic situations to control. We've got that. That means interest rates are probably going up, and it's all happening in an election year. So uh, what's your take on the economy, inflation, and how it's going to affect the uh, fall elections?
2: The rampant inflation that we're experiencing now is essentially the revenge of the nerds (laughs) because uh, for so long, nerds, and I include myself in that description, kept saying, you know, we can't just spend recklessly, have the federal government spend however much money we want to spend and not cover it with taxes because we're just going to borrow the money. We can't do that forever. We can't just borrow money forever because it's going to ultimately result in inflation and we were wrong until we were right, which is the way predictions work. Um, Inflation is really simply too much money chasing too few goods and services. Now, there's lots of potential causes there. Arguably the most important is that first part, uh, too much money, it's about the money supply. If you are keeping interest rates artificially low, in other words, monetizing federal spending, turning it into, into debt, uh, leaning on the accelerator in that sense, then eventually you're going to end up with inflation is the argument because there will be too much money chasing uh, production, even when it's a normal production year, when goods and services are being produced at a reasonable level. It's just too much money. The, the economy has been inflated by too much money. I think that's true. And I also think that there is a constriction on the other side, which is supply. Inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services. The problem is we're having trouble producing adequate goods and services that people want. Uh, That's partly a a short-term consequence of supply chain problems and COVID-related aftermath, as the president correctly observes. That's part of the problem. Some of the problem is longer-term labor market uh, deficiencies. We have people staying out of the labor market who are in the prime working age of life. And uh, that was already going down before COVID. And we have certainly not recovered back from COVID, the the share of our labor force, potential labor force that's actually working or looking for a job. So we have, and you, you can tell if you go to a restaurant or you go to a store. My wife and I went to a restaurant last night and as we did so, this restaurant fortunately had enough help and we were served pretty quickly. But next door was a furniture store. It was part of a chain and this furniture store was closed and the sign said, closed due to staffing shortages, you know, and they gave another uh, pretty far away location. If you really wanted to buy a Chase lounge, go across town where they had enough employees to actually take your order, you know, and show you the chair. Uh, this is going on in all sorts of sectors. And so if you combine too much money, Fed was had an easy money policy for too long, in my opinion. And all these constrictions on the supply of goods and services, you end up with rampant inflation. That's what we had in the 1970s. That's what we have today. It is, it is kind of, it's not just a revenge of the inflation nerds, it's also, you know, we're back to the disco era. Congratulations, we have uh, political problems, we have lack of confidence in government, we have a disastrous foreign policy decision, in this case, withdrawing from Afghanistan, and we have rampant inflation. Uh, I don't think the BGs are going to go on a tour because I think that only one of them is still with us. But other than that, it feels a lot like the 1970s.
1: And of course, the supply chain situation is worse because uh, in many sections of the, of the world where we're waiting on parts, they're basically shut down due to COVID. And so that's yep. I mean, obviously is- COVID
2: is a big part. So that's why I gave the president some credit on that. He's right that there are real supply chain problems, supply shocks that COVID created. They were deep. Some of them have recovered, we've recovered from, some of them we haven't, that's all true. The problem is that we added to that way too much federal, quote, rescue funds that really weren't needed for rescue. We borrowed a tremendous amount of money to float a lot of federal dollars down into states and localities where it's not being spent in any useful way in many cases. And so there is something to the president's excuse. It just doesn't take you very far. He's also handled it poorly.
1: Mike Walden, so, who but was so have
2: congresses of both parties for many years.
1: Mike Walden, who was on our program last week, is forecasting a recession, a mild recession, yeah. probably beginning in the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next year. He doesn't think it's going to be very severe nor long standing, but. Uh, that's one of the few things that will turn inflation around is a, a is a recession. Well, another so, way to uh, think
2: about it is that what is required to combat inflation, which is to raise interest rates. I'm sure yeah. that's what Mike was getting at, is that because you have yes. to raise interest rates to combat inflation, that is going to change the risk calculus and certain investments become unprofitable. You have to liquidate investment. And that leads to a recession. Yeah.
1: Now, interestingly enough, uh, we've got all these announcements about new plants and new uh, jobs being created in the state of North Carolina. North Carolina uh, is uh, apparently still looking for a very exciting economy for the next two years or so. Uh, Where where are all the jobs going to come from? I mean, we've got an automobile plant coming in saying they're going to work 7,000 people, and we're already having a job shortage. How are we going to solve that, John?
2: Well, it's important to remember that when you hear 2,000 jobs here, 7,000 jobs there, it's not like, 3 months from now. It's not even next year. It's going to be over time. Yeah, uh, so, well, when these things yeah. when these plants get built and when they get fully built and staffed, I mean it's going to be actually years away. And so there's enough time for the prospect of these jobs and the rising wages that will happen as employers are competing for labor. It, it will draw more people in, into North Carolina to work. It will draw more people from the sidelines into the labor force. But maybe not enough, and that's a legitimate concern. Some of these industrial uh, plants and economic development uh, announcements may end up being a lot more show than real. I don't mean that there's any deceit involved, though sometimes that happens with <laughs> economic development uh, announcements. But in this case, I think everybody could be absolutely telling the truth as they understand it, and it doesn't pan out, in part because they can't get adequate uh, labor or they may find out if there's a recession and the con- and the re- the recovery from the recession is sort of weak then the de- demand may not justify the original investment they were going to make so we'll have to see but look North Carolina comparatively is doing well but that doesn't mean we wouldn't go through a recession if the rest of the country goes through a recession we certainly will
1: economically is North Carolina state government ready for a recession
2: we're probably more ready for a recession right now in North Carolina today than we've ever been in the history of our state. That doesn't mean it'll be fun. It'll be uncomfortable. But we have so much money in uh, savings, not just in the official rainy day fund, but also just in, in the fund balance, general fund balance that wasn't spent the last year or two. Um, and we have, we, we have a lot more cushion built in. And so when there's a recession, we won't have to have the kind of precipitous, steep spending cuts that sometimes worsens the effects of recessions on on labor markets and on household incomes and and spending. Because we'll be able to use some savings to keep some public, for example, uh, public employees and vendors employed rather than laying them off, which is what happens when you cut spending, of course. Um, So we'll be able to do that. Uh, we won't be at a place where, uh, we, be already relatively high tax rates and we're raising them again to cover a budget deficit. I don't think that's going to happen because we've cut taxes and we've saved enough money to tide us over during a a, a reasonably, you know, sort of a a mild to moderate recession we can handle pretty well. So I think we're in great shape, but no one should want to have to do this. (laughs) But, uh, we have gone, as you may well remember, Don, uh, in previous cycles, going back into the eighties. We've had recessions, and North Carolina's state government was woefully underprepared, and had very little money saved, and had to do things like raise taxes and drastically cut spending in the middle of a recession, and that was that was uh, unwise. It was it. That's what needed to be done at that time, but we shouldn't have gotten there in the first place. There should have been more careful discipline on spending when times were good.
1: One of the things that does bother me a little bit is all these projects that are already on working uh, agenda are coming in so much higher than the anticipated cost. How are we going to cover that?
2: Well, it is a problem because construction delays caused by a variety of things, access to supplies, access to labor, uh, have pushed projects out. It's increased the cost of projects. This is happening in the public and private sectors. And I was just at a meeting with some folks in the construction trades where they were talking about this. And in the short term, the, the remedies aren't great. In the long term, we've got to figure out ways to encourage young people to go into the construction trades, making clear to them that they can make really good money not having to go get a four-year degree, uh, but learning how to do various trades, brick masonry and uh, housing construction and industrial construction, operating heavy machinery, welding, a lot of these kinds of, of roles that make really good money, including just the transportation part did you see that Amazon had to raise its truck driver salaries up into the six figures to get people to take truck driving jobs? Uh, I thought about it. Uh, I could listen to a lot of radio, Dodd, if I was driving trucks around, but I decided I don't, I don't know that that's really for me, but I mean, that, that if you're in these fields and you're willing to do the work, you're you're making pretty good money. The problem is there aren't enough people coming into the field and that's why we're getting rising costs and rising costs and much greater delays.
1: Of course, uh, rising salaries means more income tax for both the federal government and state government. So that's not necessarily bad, but it does put uh, strain on the uh, price of goods and services uh, and uh, everything has to be passed on. So uh, it is a real concern of mine because I heard of one project that's coming in at 40% over what was estimated last year I also talked to a uh, city manager in my hometown of Vesmer City, Uh, actually it was the assistant city manager, and said they've ordered a piece of equipment, sort of a specialized piece of equipment, but it's a large purchase. And they were told the delivery would be in 15 months. My goodness. 15 months. That's a long way out.
2: This is not not a practical, this is not a sustainable situation.
1: So how long do you think we're going to be living with this, this uh, supply chain, labor shortage uh, situation? On the labor
2: shortage, done. I'll say this. I didn't really fully appreciate this until I read some recent studies. I'm just that nerdy. I read peer reviewed studies in labor markets, came across a study that estimated that as much as a fourth, maybe, maybe more of the decline in labor force participation that we've experienced is because of drug and alcohol abuse. And it was obviously exacerbated by by COVID, people who were literally isolated from everybody else. And the one thing that killed the pain was to drink too much or to do opioids or whatever. Um, Even though times are better, even though the labor market is tightened so much that you can make really good money, some folks who should be working are not because they simply can't pass the drug test or uh, they just aren't in a place where they could handle a job, even if they could fake the drug test. I mean, they just, they can't do it. So we have a substance abuse and mental health crisis that is not easily solved. It's not something, you could, well, let's pass a law. No, you can't simply do that. So uh, it's going to be here for some time. It's one of the things that really concerns me about the long-term, about the, the intermediate term, is you would think that economic... That market forces would signal the people to come back in the labor market and take jobs. Amazon wants to pay somebody $110,000 to drive a truck. Well, then there's going to be a line of people around the block to drive trucks. Maybe, but some of the people who should be driving trucks uh, have drug and alcohol abuse that is so substantial that they are not, we wouldn't want them behind the wheel. And it's not a minor problem, it's a major problem.
1: Our guest is John Hood. We have one final segment coming up on Carolina Newsmakers. And I want to talk about the media, bias, and apathy. When we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, you stay tuned.
0: One in three adults in America have pre-diabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in
1: reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. Years 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, Exercise and healthy eating can help
0: reverse pre-diabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with John Hood, president of the John William Polk Foundation, frequent guest on our program, and author of a number of books, of which the latest is what?
2: Uh, My latest book, my ninth book, is my second novel. It's called Forest Folk. It's a sequel to last year's novel, Mountain Folk. Uh, Mountain Folk was a historical fantasy novel that's set in colonial America. Much of it occurs in North Carolina, but not all of it. And Forest Folk picks up the story around 1800 and takes the reader through the 1830s. So it depicts the War of 1812. It depicts the beginnings of the abolition movement and it depicts the Trail of Tears. Um, It it has, again, just like Mountain Folk does, Forest Folk has human character, real life people who are characters in my novel like Davy Crockett, and Andrew Jackson, and Junaluska, and Sojourner Truth, and Ichabod Crane, who was a real person, by the way. But it also has fantasy characters. Uh, It has a giant Cherokee river dragon You know, as as novels of this sort do, it has it has bloodthirsty frog creatures, it has a giant leech that will suck your blood, you know that kind of thing. So on that cheery note, I'm very excited to tell you that I have my second novel, Forest Folk, out.
1: Well, as some of your other books, uh, including Jim Martin and The Rise of the North Carolina Republicans. Uh, which you published in 2015. You all said that, that those were all uh, nonfiction. But see, I'm wondering if there wasn't a little fiction in some of those too. But I'm, that's just I'm just
2: kidding. Well, there were some blood-sucking parasites, even in the Jim okay. Martin book. I mean, because I was writing about members of Congress. Oh, but, okay. but technically, they're not dragons. You know, okay. giant monsters okay. that, that we know. Okay. Of.
1: John, I, I didn't want to talk to you about uh, the media and how we're getting our news and information. We've talked about this several times before, but it's getting to be of increasing concern to me of how people are are basically watching the media that they agree with to begin with and not necessarily getting the holistic look at an issue. And of course, that creates bias. And then the other concern I've got is what I'm seeing is an increasing amount of uh, I guess would be best described as just apathy.
2: What are you seeing these days? I'm seeing both of those things. And the latter is somewhat reducing the former. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, this is somewhat due to the fact that we had such a high profile presidential election in 2020. And then we had COVID and we had all these exciting events. And so things like ratings for the major cable news channels were really high. And they're not anymore. They've fallen. Uh, there's somewhat of a recovery for, for Ukraine war coverage. But I think that in the long term, the sort of shouting match television that dominated uh, the, the news coverage for the politically engaged uh, is declining. I think people have gotten tired of that. Now, some of them are becoming apathetic. They're saying, well, I don't no one ever. Nothing ever seems to get any better. Politicians promise and it never happens. It's kind of entertaining. And then the the show gets kind of old and I don't want to watch the fourth season of the Donald Trump show or the Joe Biden show or whatever it is. Uh, So there is some apathy. I also, though, think some people are, in fact, turning more towards state and local affairs. We're seeing that in a number of places around the country where people are really engaged in local issues So what's being taught in our schools. Uh, how come it costs so much to build housing? No one can seem to find an affordable house. Why is there traffic all the time? So there's a little bit of focus turning back towards state and local affairs, which I really like, and less of a focus on Congress, which I really like. (laughs) Um, But what I don't like is the extent to which people are just checking out. Now, some of it is because in the aftermath of COVID, which was a horrible experience, people are trying to enjoy life for a while, and I don't blame them. Uh, They don't like the gas prices. They don't like inflation. They're worried about these things. But they're also trying to sort of take the trips they didn't take and do the things with their kids they didn't get a chance to do. So there's a lot of focus internal on households and families and communities. And I don't think we should be greatly unnerved by that, even if it means they're not focused on congressional primaries as much as they might have been in the past. that, That does not greatly concern me. What concerns me is that when we get to the general election. Uh, Will, in fact, folks who are disaffected with politics as it's currently practiced, who really want members of Congress or members of the legislature, Democrats, and Republicans, to find a more constructive way to argue with each other. If those voters just tune out and stay home, then we're not going to get anything better. So I I hope that even if they're not so fixated on politics, that they're not, you know, may not be watching their eight o'clock at night cable news shows anymore, which is perfectly fine with me because that was mostly a waste of time. But I hope that they do re-engage when election time comes because we need, we, need to, we need to pick and support and reelect leaders who are grownups and who tend to the matters that governments can tend to, which aren't very many, but are important and otherwise leave us alone. That's at least my take on things.
1: John, our company is doing a good bit of research right now. One of the things we're finding out is that uh, as far as news coverage, people are not so interested in the event. For example, let's say Congress passes a new law on taxes. They really don't care what the vote was. They don't really care about uh, who supported it, who didn't support it. Uh, They don't care much about the dialogue. What they want to know is, okay, how does this affect me? that's what we're finding out uh, that there doesn't seem to be uh, any uh, apathy with regard to personal needs. People want to know whatever is happening, how does it affect me, whether it's in health, uh, pocketbook issues, or government issues. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I'm not sure that that is a radical change. I, I well remember studies that when I was reading Uh, for papers that I was writing in journalism school in the 1980s where they were surveying newspaper readers and asking them questions. And a lot of it was basically give me news I can use as opposed to some abstract stuff. So I'm not sure this is genuinely new. I do think that the worldwide wrestling match version of politics that has become so uh, dominant in some media channels, it turns a regular people off. It turns some people on, of course, but they're a pretty small segment of the population who really want to consume that sort of screaming match, wrestling match stuff all the time. Most people really aren't interested in that. They're sort of intrigued as they drive by the traffic accident, but then they're ready to get on down the road to, to the house. They don't want to spend all day, you know, looking at the traffic accident. And so I think news organizations, radio, TV, all, everybody's involved in media in order to sustain and engage people, need to be thinking about this. What what does a person in my neighborhood care about this story I'm putting together? Because if they don't care about it, they're probably not going to listen to it. Um, And just because I care about it doesn't mean my audience cares about it. And I've been writing a syndicated column in North Carolina uh, for several dozen newspapers. I've been writing it since 1986. And I constantly have to fight my own tendencies. I will want to write about something that interests me and you really, as a writer, you have to be interested in your subject or your, your copy is going to be boring. But if I'm just, I mean, if I was writing, you know, column after column about the origins of, you know, epic fantasy or, you know, the how, how wonderful it was when there were radio dramas that depicted, you know, various slices of life in the 1940s. I mean, I, I'm very interested in that, but I don't think that's what my readers want to read about and so I've really got to think about what do readers want to know? In the case of inflation, do they want to read a, or hear an elaborate discussion of different schools of thought about monetary policy? Probably not. But it may be helpful to talk about inflation in terms of too much money chasing too few goods. So maybe what we need to do is have less money floating around and we need to make it easier to, to make goods and services. Now, I think that is putting inflation in us in the, the the causes of inflation, the possible remedies to inflation, in terms that people can can really dig their teeth into.
1: John, as you look at, uh, we've got about two and a half minutes left in this program. If you are looking ahead now for the next uh, month, of course, the primary election will be in the news. The Ukrainian situation will be in the news, but uh, I'm afraid if it's extended that people will begin getting bored with that. But what else should we be watching for that will have an effect on uh, uh, the elections in the fall? What are the big headlines that you see uh, that we should be watching and listening for and uh, seeing what we can do about learning about during the next uh, uh, two to three months?
2: I think you put your finger on the two issues that will still be at the top, which is inflation and concerns about the economic future. And I do think the war in Ukraine and, and the broader foreign policy challenges that America faces will be number two. But I also think people are concerned about education, the quality of education, what's being taught in classrooms. That is still a very, very high profile issue for lots of voters. And I also think immigration is an issue that lots of people care about Healthcare is a perennial. People do care about that issue. I I don't feel right now that it is uh, acute. People uh, are looking at the healthcare issues as as acute as they see inflation, which is not typically in their mind like medical services, but things like gasoline prices and and food prices and things like that. I think it's inflation. I think it's Ukraine and America standing in the world. I think it's immigration. I think it's education. I think those are the key ones. And if you look at what what voters are, or what uh, candidates are advertising, those are the issues they're advertising if they're interested in the fall elections.
1: Well, the supply chain, and the, uh, as you said, the issues that, that uh, are side effects of what that's causing, uh,
2: and uh, you can see it when you go to the get go to the pump to fill up your car when you go uh, to the grocery store to yeah. buy milk. I mean, these are things that are very much directly in people's lives every day it's not theoretical yeah. it's very practical it's directly affecting them and they know it yeah
1: and as you said earlier i think people are still very tired of the restrictions we had during the covid period and uh, that's not gone away completely as a matter of fact there may be a, a, a little wave of that coming back in and, uh, and uh, but it'll and be unpopular
2: i mean the, the attempt to yeah. reimpose ma- mask mandates and stuff I, I think that the politicians in both parties Democrats who used to be more in favor. Of, I think they know that that the impatience with that is too high now. Um, yeah. So they're probably not going to come back in with heavy lockdowns.
1: Yeah. Well, interesting. And John, thank you so much for sharing with us. I don't have a, quite enough time. You've got time for your word of the day before we leave. You usually leave me with a word that I have no idea in the world what it means. So I know that's the bottom
2: uh, of, of of the reason you, you uh, invite me. The decision rule. The one? Desideratum. Okay. Now, what does that mean exactly? Very quickly. (laughs) It's a criterion.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. See, I I have a a word of the day from John Hood each time. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com. And there, are all of the programs we've had on in the past with John are also archived, so you can go back and listen to some of those. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody.
0: Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com.